the scripture again in this kind of the series we're doing on will you be my neighbor the scripture is a familiar one um, I'm reading it in the new um, NRSV, which is kind of an updated language version of the new Revised Standard Bible. So chapter, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, hear these words this morning. When the Pharisees heard that he has silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them an expert in the law asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. May God grant us understanding of these words this day. As I said before, I'm grateful to be back with you. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the time away. And I'm grateful to see your faces this morning. To whether you're here or you're joining us online In our time away, the littles played in the dirt. They roasted marshmallows, and they enjoyed cousin time. I have a picture of Dakota, who is two, with her cousin Lucy, who's two and a half. And they're filthy. They are covered in dust, with big smiles on their faces. I arrived home on Monday, took Tuesday to do the endless loads of laundry to unpack and settle back in, and on Wednesday I came back to work. And I have to tell you that even though my week was shorter, it's been a week. I don't know how many times since the Roe versus Wade thing came out that I've sat in front of my computer wondering what I could possibly say, how I could possibly address this thing that's happened. I looked at that blank page and I wondered, and I'm thinking that maybe some of you did the same. One of my friends, his name is Kent Little. He and I have done our doctoral work together. He is a UMC pastor in Kansas. He wrote some remarks that he began with by saying, I have no words. And then he offered a safe place for his church to talk about their feelings. And I want to offer you the same. I'm available if you need me to talk about what you're feeling. One of the things that happened in the last day or two just kind of rocked my world a little bit. You see, I have many friends on Facebook from all walks of my life. Many are progressive in their religious expression and their politics like me, but I have some that are not. Maybe I went to college with them. Maybe they might even be members of my family, 
whatever. There are people who are not progressive that are on my feed. And I noticed a post that oh, I didn't know how to respond. And so I didn't. One of my friends posted about how this was such a victory and that Oregon would come along eventually. And I just looked at that and I went, oh my goodness, I can't post to that because I can't invite myself to that argument. I can only be who I am. But you know, one of the things I did is I thought about how I would respond if I were face to face with this person. Because when I saw that post, my heart broke. And what I would say to this person is, maybe you've never been poor. And my heart broke. Maybe you've never been between a rock and a hard spot. And my heart broke. Maybe, just maybe, you haven't had to make a choice between your life and a child's life. when you have three children at home. Maybe you haven't had to do that, that you can say this is a victory. Maybe you've never been raped. Maybe, just maybe, you're, you're talking from a point of privilege. And my heart broke. I never wrote any of that because it wouldn't be received. It wouldn't. I know that. But I know that I can stand here with you and you can understand where I'm coming from. So that happened. And then last night I went to um, the convention center. I rode the Max out. And it's always an experience to ride the Max and see who's on the Max. I rode the Max out to the convention center and met up with my friend, Michelle. She and her wife live in Missouri. And right now she is, um, she's, she's a Disciples of Christ pastor serving a um, Unitarian Universalist church. And, um, and part time, and then her main job is with campus ministry, kind of an ecumenical movement. And I, we went out to dinner and we spent hours talking. And one of the things that I noticed about our conversation is Michelle's stance on what's going on. And here's why I think that, well, she said she was an optimist. Because I asked her if she was afraid and she said no. She said she was an optimist and I said, well, how can you be an optimist living in Missouri. And she says, because I do this campus ministry and I serve college students that give me hope. This is a generation of young people who are gonna change the world because of how they see humanity.
And although I have all the anger and feels about what happened, I can't help but frame it. Maybe it's not our generation that's going to make this change, but that it's the next one. I don't know. I don't know the answers. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. So I have my blank page. Remember a few weeks ago when I talked about how we can do the things that make for peace? I think this is one of them. We do what we can, where we can, how we can. And we love. And we love. So kind of on, that, that's the pre-sermon. On to my sermon. Okay, so I was born in 1961. And I lived in Montana. And I remember getting our very first television. It was this black and white thing that had these rabbit ears on top. And they would put foil on them so the picture would be clear. Do some of you relate to that? Watching TV was a family affair. It's what happened after we did the dishes after dinner. We would all sit, and often us kids would have some input into what we watched, except for one evening. And that was Mom's Night. Mom had one show that she absolutely loved and never missed. And when that show came on, we were not allowed to talk. We were not allowed to giggle. We were not allowed to do anything but sit there and watch. Any guesses what that show might be? What was that, Stephen? Yeah, that one's something else. But it was hee-haw. It was hee-haw. And so we weren't allowed to do anything when hee-haw was on. And I remember, you know, sitting there rolling my eyes as mom was really into this thing. But I remember there was this one little vignette that they had regularly on Hee Haw. Um, here's how I remember it. There were at least two kind of decrepit individuals in bib overalls sitting around in broken down chairs drinking moonshine, at least I think that that's what it was. They sang a song that goes something like this. Loom, despair, and agony on me. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And some days I can relate. Some days I can relate to that. Some days the best laid plans go south or sideways, or inside out and backwards. I don't know how to describe it, but, but we have these great things that we're going to do and it doesn't happen. You know, for me, one of those moments was when I got COVID after being extremely careful and having to call my congregation and tell them I can't preach on Sunday. And they, you know, had to, had to cancel services 
for that Sunday and, and feeling that incredible guilt because I was patient zero in my family. I caught COVID and I brought it home to David and the kids and, and kind of those things where I just felt like nothing was going right. And what I noticed in that place, in that time, was that people had all kinds of responses to my suffering. Like, try not to worry. You shouldn't feel guilty. You should just count your blessings instead. Look on the bright side of things. Just put those thoughts out of your mind. Why don't you pray and see what the Bible says to you? And this one. I really had to think about this one. Think of all the people that are worse off than you. Really? If you just relax, things will get better. Just let it go. When all was said and done, I didn't feel supported. In fact, I felt very much like those hee-haw guys. What I know is that I, I strive to be a whole person in a broken world. I strive to be a person that walks in love and light. I strive to be a whole person who knows who I am and whose I am. I strive for that in a world where the rules are changing every single day, maybe every single moment of every single day. And you know, I know I'm not alone in this, that sometimes our heads whirl. Sometimes we don't know who we are from one moment to the next, or how we feel from one moment to the next. And we know, however, being who we are, we know that others struggle too. So what makes a critical difference in the life, in a life, where there's a sense of being a whole person? What makes that whole person possible? How do we know who we're meant to be? One where we can bring light and life to others. Where we can be light and life to others. Where we can remember that we are here for our neighbors. Where peace on earth begins right here. Where love begins with us where hope begins with us. The familiar part of our passage today, Matthew 22, uh, beginning with Matthew 22, 34, is the last in a string of questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been asking Jesus. Earlier on in 22:15, Matthew says that the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said, meaning they wanted to get him to debate them with the goal of getting himself into trouble by saying the wrong thing. <laughs> Sounds like politics haven't changed a whole lot, have they? They pursue this with the Sadducees. Um, 
who really don't have any affection for Jesus. I mean, any of the stories that we read where the Sadducees are apart, there's not a lot of love there. But first up to bat are the Pharisees who ask Jesus a question about taxes, to which Jesus responds, something that is probably familiar, um, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God, or something like that, that, that he answers that way. Later on, the Sadducees come and ask him a complicated question about Leverite marriages in order to get him to, in a roundabout way, admit that there is no resurrection. Because remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. It explains a lot, doesn't it? When we know that that was kind of their belief system. Jesus was not having any of that conversation, though, not giving them any leverage for what they needed. He responded and then sent them on their way, leaving the crowds astounded because the crowds didn't dare speak out against those people. One of the religious leaders, officials in the crowd, asked Jesus to kind of go way out on a limb. He wants to know what Jesus believes is the most important commandment out of all the commandments in the Jewish law. Jesus has to be careful how he answers that. There are 613 commandments in Jewish law. And Jesus was asked to say which one was the most important. Answering the question was no small thing. The rabbis counted those 613 individual laws. Of those, 365 were negative, 248 were positive. Attempts were made to argue what was great, what were the great commandments, what were the little commandments. When Jesus answered, he would be forced to choose among the thought and study of that day. And when he did that, someone somewhere would not be happy with his answer, no matter what he said. Yet, the answer he did give seemed to silence the critics. The whole of the law is summed up here. All 613 individual laws would be kept if one loved God with all there is to give and loved others as though they were as oneself. Love God, love neighbor, love self. You know, given that this was kind of a setup, there was no way that Jesus could answer this question without offending someone. To say one commandment was more important than another was to leave him open to a charge of heresy. So he was taking some big risk here. Which commandment is first of all? If, if someone asked us that question today, kind of translated in our time now, it, the question would be something like, what is the most important thing in all of life? Okay, Justin, this is for you. I'm kind of a nerd. And as I was prepping for this sermon and I was thinking about that question, I thought of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
where the answer to the meaning of life was 42. In other words, it was a question without an answer. If, so when we're asked today, what is the meaning of life? It might as well be 42. However, Jesus doesn't shy from the immensity of this question that he's asked. He quotes an ancient text from the, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, this first became Israel's confession of faith, her sacred text for every generation. A devout Jew would repay, repeat this text as prayer twice a day. This is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was known as the Shema. It means hear thou. The first part of hear, O Israel. When Jesus was asked what was the most important thing, he repeated this text. Today, Jesus might say something like, listen up, people. Here is the most important thing in all of life. Here is the one thing that will make a difference in your living. Here is the one key to becoming fully alive, a whole person. You shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. In other words, the most important thing in life is to put God in the center. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Because he also adds the second, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first. And then love neighbor with the same love you hold for yourself. And it's important to note that Jesus' definition of neighbor was very different than the Jewish definition of neighbor in this time. The Jewish definition of neighbor was another Jew. And Jesus blew that out of the water. Jesus expanded that as we look at the Gospels and the things that Jesus taught. Loving neighbor is important. But I would say to you that loving self is important too. You see, we have been created by an amazing God. Words and all. You know, who we are, who we're called to be, is not who society sees us as. not. And the neighbors that are around us, which is everybody, are not who the world wants to paint them as either. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love your neighbor 
That's everyone else. As you love yourself, knowing full well that we have a lot of baggage that keeps us from loving ourselves. The world has told us a lot of things. God doesn't see us that way. The love that God has for God's people is imprinted in our DNA. And yes, people believe differently than we do. And yes, people do not always treat others with respect. But if our DNA is calling us to love, how we treat others is different than the world out there. That we can see those people who come to our pantry and we can look at them with eyes of love. We can see the people camped around and we can see them with eyes of love. Because it's imprinted on our DNA. It's harder to see people who disagree with us with eyes of love, but we can do it. And the way that we do it is we support each other. Love first. Love first. Loving God, loving neighbor, loving self. Three small things that change our world. Back to those guys in that song, we don't need luck. We don't. We don't need to compare who we are with anyone else. We need to work on our core. Loving God, loving neighbor, loving self. Be angry, but do not despair. Rise up with hope. There is more to come. This is not over. Remember these three things. Write them on your mirror at home if you need to. Love God, love neighbor, love self. And it all begins and ends with love. So who is my neighbor? Everyone. What is my response? Love. May God grant us the courage to love in ways that we can't even imagine. May God grant us the courage to take care of each other, to listen, to live, to love, and eventually to laugh as our world changes for the better because it will. I have that hope. And my friend Michelle helped me find it. Amen.